You're listening to the Better Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Tom. Today, um, the guest is Jin Park, and the episode really speaks for itself. Um, she's written this amazing book called Women in Buddhist Philosophy. Um, and, you know, I said in the manifesto of this podcast that I'm under no illusions that the goal of removing the Eurocentricism from philosophy is bound up with issues of gender and uh, related issues. And so because of that, it's a really important episode to include. Um, how do women engage with philosophy generally? How do women engage with Buddhism? Um, and what might we pause to reflect on? So lots of really important issues here that we discuss and get into, and I know you're going to enjoy that. I'm so excited to introduce my guest today because of her commitment to doing the kind of philosophy that should be done rather than what is expected to be done. Uninspired by Kant, Hegel and Aristotle at the start of her philosophical education, Jin Park became particularly interested in studying Buddhist philosophy after reading Jacques Derrida. The coherence between Derrida's of grammatology and Buddhist philosophy ignited an interest in comparative philosophy to this day, which focuses particularly on Buddhist philosophy, postmodernism and Merleau-Ponty. As Professor of Philosophy and Religion and Founding Director of the Asian Studies Program at American University, Jin has contributed to doing philosophy as it should be done. She founded and directed the International Society for Buddhist Philosophy, which has significantly raised the profile of Buddhist philosophy in academia and has served and serves as President of the Society for Asian and Comparative Philosophy and the North American Comparative Philosophy Association. Today, we'll discuss Jin's book, Women and Buddhist Philosophy, Engaging Zen Master Kim Iryok, as the title indicates, it is a rich book which has much to contribute to our discussion about women, Buddhism, and philosophy today. Jin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. So, um, I guess in starting off talking about the book specifically, we should talk about the main figure that it centers around. So, that's Kim Iryuk. And um, could you give kind of a brief um, introduction about who she was to someone who's never heard about her before? Yeah. Uh, yes, sure. So Kim Iria, uh, just to, to begin with the name, actually Kim is her family name and in East Asian tradition, last name comes first, right? And Iria is her pen name and the Dharma name. So we usually call her Iria. Uh, she was born 1896 and she died and passed away in 1971. Her father was really very passionate Christian pastor and her mother was also very passionate and faithful Christian. So she grew up as a really uh, faithful Christian. And then she was a uh, the first generation of the group called the New Women. These women were the first generation in Korea or worldwide who received the, a public education and then who realized the gender discrimination in a society. And then she, the, the, the new women, they did something to change society. So especially in Confucian Korean society, women were not educated, but then the Kimidia studied uh, in uh, all the way up to nowadays uh, university education. That's the first time that Korean women actually received that. And she went to Japan to study. And as soon as she came back in 1920, she, she published a journal 
uh, called New Women, Shinyeja, which was the first journal published by women for the women. So in during 1920s, she was very active as a uh, social activist who trying to promote the women's position in Korean society, radically challenging the women's idea about the women in Confucian Korean society. And she was also a very well-known writer, female writer, published uh, poems and short stories and uh, polemics. But at a certain point in the late 1920s, she got interested in Buddhism and she began to practice Buddhism uh, as a lay practitioner. And eventually, in 1933, she joined a monastery. And then she stayed there until her death in 1971. And she really uh, became a distinguished figure in Korean nuns community. And she was very well known in 1940s, 50s, 60s. And uh, when she joined the monastery, her, her master, her teacher, Jan Master Mangong, told her not to read or write. So in a way, this was a kind of uh, the training in Jan uh, community so that the practitioner can solely focus on their kind of meditation and Buddhist practice. So in, indeed, she stopped publishing her works from about 1935 until late 1950s for two decades. And in 1960, she came back to the world of publication. She published her first book. And in 1961, she published her second book. In 1964, she published her third book. So it was in this kind of later publication that she really talked about Buddhism in the context of life and the women's issue, even though it's not too visible. But if you really look at it very closely, you clearly see the echo of her earlier thinking as a feminist activist in her Buddhist writing. And so, so you cover a lot about her life in the book, about, um, say, the start of the personal tragedies in her life, her relationship with her father and how that relates between Buddhism and Christianity, her role in the women's movement and all these, and, and as a Buddhist nun in her later writings. But you said that this isn't just a biography that you're writing, or, well, it's not a biography in the sense that you are talking about someone's life and there is um, nothing more to it there. So there are some further levels that you want to consider as indicated by the title, Women and Buddhist Philosophy. So um, what are these further levels that, that you think it's really important to consider when reading your book? Right. <clears throat> so as a philosopher, in my first monograph, I really uh, did a lot of abstract philosophical ideas in my book, Buddhism and Postmodernity. And after I finished my book, I began to think that how real are these ideas? What I meant is that, well, what are the impact of these ideas in an, an individual's life? How concrete our philosophy can be in our actual life? So I was looking for materials and then I kind of came up with a Kimmedia. And as I read through her life stories and her books, I realized that there are different layers of things that I can do with these materials. So um, first I wrote it in a kind of, as a, biography starting from the very beginning of her life until the end of her life and each stage shows different aspects of Gimidab's thought. Now I did that to demonstrate actually how an individual lives a life. It's a story about an individual's life, right? But then 
from my perspective, anything in life can be a philosophy, right? It's really whether we philosophize it or not. It's not that there is a specific topic that can be a philosophical topic. Any topics in life is philosophical, can be philosophy if we look at it from that perspective. So by presenting Gimme Up's life, I uh, give a concrete reality of an individual's life, how an individual lives a life, struggle to find a meaning, struggle to find an identity, struggle to get over social constraints uh, like a gender discrimination, right? And how the, the individual actually lived through this uh, a tradition called Buddhism and combine it with her kind of struggles of life, her loss, her loneliness, her search for meaning. But then I use Gimidab's story also in a second layer, larger picture of what it means to do a philosophy. Traditionally, we think that philosophy is possible only in the West, only male can do that. And there is like a reason should be involved in it. It should be logical. So in traditional way of thinking about philosophy, we exclude a lot of things. And I don't think that's what it should be. In other words, philosophy is after all about life. We do philosophy, we philosophize in order to think about life, in order to know what this life is about, how we find a value, how we live a better life. And then, not only reason, but emotion, not only logical, quote-unquote, rational thinking, but narrative should be part of philosophy. So I use Gimidab's life story as a way to present different ways of doing philosophy. So I use the expression narrative philosophy, mm-hmm. philosophy which we do by t- telling the story about life. And at the third layer, I use this as a kind of challenge to very most Eurocentric or Western-centric kind of way of doing philosophy. In the introduction, you mentioned about this kind of Western-centeredness of our philosophy. And a lot of non-Western philosophical tradition or thought tradition has been excluded in our philosophy education, philosophy study, and philosophizing. And I presented Gimidia, her struggle, her Buddhism, as an alternative to Eurocentric, West-centric uh, way of doing philosophy. Mm. So, so am I right in saying that, so you translated um, Kimidia's uh, Reflections of a Zen Buddhist Nun, and did you receive during the translation and afterwards claims that, well, this isn't really philosophy, it's quite um, autobiographical, this book, and um, hence it doesn't have much meaning in uh, philosophy, um, it's just an autobiography. Well, yeah, so <clears throat> I did some kind of experiment uh, with my students, actually. So uh, I, one of the course that I teach is uh, Philosophy and Modernity in East Asia. So this is the course in which I read uh, with my students uh, about modern East Asian philosophy in the context of how philosophy came to uh, Asia and how uh, Asian intellectuals struggled with uh, this genre philosophy and how they did philosophy. So I start with uh, it's uh, uh, what we call the upper level seminar, upper level undergraduate and um, the grad students uh, do together. I start with uh, uh, Nishida Gitaro, you know, go to school mm. thinker, very happy, very heavy philosophy book. And then I read this kind of uh, 
very philosophy, tr- quote unquote, traditional philosophy writing. And then I moved to Kimidia and uh, I, I tried to see that, uh, okay, how students respond to this? Do they think this is a philosophy? They do not know who Gimirabi is, right? So they do not know whether she's a well-known philosopher or not. She, they probably assume that since I assigned a book to them, she must be a great thinker. Now, the students, the way the students responded was interesting. They say that, well, when I read Nishida, it was really very difficult to understand him, right? Nishida is really difficult. He's very kind of a, the a hardcore philosophy. And when I read Gimirabi, I realized that all the things Nishida tried to say, Kimirov said the same thing, but in a very different way. Mm. And then I thought, okay, yes, that's what I actually was looking for. There are different ways of saying things, right? So there is one way, Nishida's way, and there's another way, Kimirov's way, narrative, logical thing. There are, I'm not saying that there is one way of saying, doing philosophy. I'd like to show that there are different ways of doing it and we should appreciate that if that really helps us to understand life, meaning and the values and so on. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you said uh, Nishida is very difficult because <laughs> I've tried to find him and found him very difficult as well. So <laughs> <laughs> um, your opinion is that um, philosophy can be both biographical and theoretical. And it's not that women do philosophy in a specific way which is biographical uh, or narrative philosophy and men doing it in a specific way that is the patriarchal um, kind of approach. It is that um, there are multiple ways to do um, uh, philosophy um, because I've I've had people, when I've been talking to people about um, and trying to summarize your work, people have said to me, well, perhaps this reinforces um, kind of stereotypes about women which I don't agree with that criticism, but if you were to receive that kind of um, that statement about kind of what you're doing, how, how would you respond to that? Right. I, I think that is a really legitimate and valid criticism. Mm. And in the book, I did say that the, uh, risking the overgeneralization, I claim that the women's philosophy tends toward to more uh, storytelling type, whereas uh, traditional Western male-centered philosophy has been more quote-unquote logical kind of theorization. Now, I don't think that this should be woman's way of thinking and woman's way of doing philosophy. But if you really read uh, writings by female thinkers, both East and West, you see that most of them actually in some way telling the life story of themselves I think it has to do with the language. You know, as uh, Spivak says, as, uh, in, in a very well-known uh, article, can Alton speak? In other words, all the philosophical languages are languages of male. They are the languages of male, which in a way exclude women's life experience. Up to very recently, even nowadays, women's life experiences are really focusing on their uh, family work, housework, their rela- relationship with the family members. And these kind of uh, uh, experiences are very difficult to talk about if you use this kind of principle and a phenomenon and, and what a kind of very much philosophical languages. So I think that one of the reasons why women's philosophy tends toward more narrative style is because women so far are lacking 
the quote-unquote kind of philosophical language. And in order to challenge this patriarchal tradition, then they have to talk about their own experiences, right? And then in doing that, they kind of go through the storytelling. So I don't think that this should be the only way of way for women to do philosophy. As more and more female thinkers emerge and being appreciated and recognized as a philosopher, then the women will develop another kind of or very various different types of doing philosophy. But at this point, I would say that women tend to toward to do more narrative philosophy, and that's not just to kind of putting women in a box called narrative philosophy, but because of the tradition, which is over 2,000 years old, uh, that has been dominated by male, and then women cannot. It's difficult for women to uh, talk about their experience by using this male languages. And the same thing happens in East Asian or non-Western philosophy. Right? So there are a lot of different kind of dimension in non-Western philosophy, but the Western philosophical tradition says that that's not philosophy because it has it has religious comp uh, component, it has this and it has that. But if you're really trying to put philosophy in a box called the Western philosophy, then we are really, really losing uh, a lot of rich philosophical traditions and thought traditions in the world. Mm. Yeah, and um, you know, this is something that you're already kind of getting at, but it's it's, it's my impression that kind of it's the um, subversive um, kind of element in a lot of these philosophies. So uh, women's philosophy, um, when women are confronting patriarchy, um, it's the narrative becomes really important. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I, I was looking at kind of uh, autobiographies that I've Kind of been looking at recently and say the, the autobiography of Angela Davis is um, one of her most widely read works and you know there's, pro there's probably a reason for that because reflections on one's life are um, important when we're trying to confront uh, discrimination. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Right I think there is a power in the life story of, of people because that is a story about how an individual actually lived a life right and when we read a biography, and then especially this kind of a women like Kimido, who lived a life such a kind of a panoramic and such a kind of diverse uh, situations, struggling herself, pushing herself forward, there's something that makes us think, right? And that's the beginning point of philosophizing, the way that I understand it. So I think that's the power of narrative. Mm. Okay, so we can return to Kim Iliop now which we're already starting to do. So traditionally, my impression is that um, there was a perception that a move from the women's movement um, towards becoming a Buddhist nun was a break in her life and that she'd left the women's movement behind. You've already said that um, in this interview that you don't think that that is the case um, and that there's kind of something related between uh, feminist concerns and between uh, what you call existentialist concerns, I'm assuming they're kind of the existentialist concerns that you identify within um, a, a Buddhist pursuit. Um, so how do you see these related and why do you not see there as kind of a significant break as has been traditionally interpreted from um, Liop's move to becoming a nun? 
Right. I, so as you said, that the scholarship has been saying that there is a rupture in Kim Il-up's life. So Kim Il-up as a feminist and a social activist in 1920s and Kim Il-up as a Buddhist nun from 1930s on, they are two different kind of aspects of Kim Il-up's life and there, are, there is no relationship between the two. And I made it clear in my publications, no, they are the kind of the same streaming of a one uh, an individual's life, and I identify that the kind of a line as a search for uh, freedom, right? So I think it makes sense that the, a woman who was a very radical, active feminist moved to Buddhism and then kind of uh, thinking about the existential reality of, of a human being. Now. Think about this, why would a woman become a feminist? Why uh, would a woman be really actively involved with changing society about gender discrimination or any discrimination unless the person asks a question about life itself? As a woman experiencing social discrimination, she must think that, what is this all about? Who am I? What am I doing? That existential question is already at the bottom of a feminist movement, right? So the feminist idea from Kim Il-up's perspective and the social activism challenges social norms. And in 1920s, Kim Il-up thought that that would be sufficient to give her a sense of who she is and how she would live her life. It looks like by the end of 1920s, she realized that that's not sufficient. I should go deeper and really find a kind of this uh, cause of uh, uh, discontentment that I have about my life. So that's where she moved toward existential kind of dimension. So in other words, the being a feminist, being a social activist, and uh, really thinking about the existential reality of an individual, they cannot be two separate things, right? Because we are really seriously think about our existence, the values of uh, that we support and the meaning of our existence, then we began to think about the social norms and the socially defined identities. So I think that one of the reasons why uh, earlier scholarship on Gimida uh, failed to see this uh, uh, connection between Gimida uh, as a feminist activist and Gimida as a Buddhist scholar was because of the uh, perhaps the Zhang issue. So the Scholars uh, of women's studies, uh, they read only women's, uh, the period, that period of Gimme Up 1920s, uh, but they did not touch Gimme Up as a Buddhist. And Gimme Up as a Buddhist nun really has been forgotten for a long time because I claim she was a nun, not a monk. And I made this claim in Korea and people try not to buy my claim. But I, I, if Kim Il-up was a Buddhist monk, then Korean Buddhist community could have uh, thought about Kim Il-up earlier. But then Kim Il-up's Buddhism has not been studied until I brought her back to. So the Kim Il-up's Buddhism was published in English. Uh, and before all that, there, there is any kind of a scholarship in Korean and Korea. So I think that this kind of, this is one of the also problem of the division of genre, right? And that's why we are more and more talking about interdisciplinary. Uh, an individual's life, our life cannot be divided by like a simply a feminist, a simply a Buddhist, uh, like that. 
we have a lot of different aspects in our life, as we call uh, multiple subjectivity, right? So in order to really understand an individual's life comprehensively, we should see various different aspects of it. And the scholarship also needs to follow up with that. So this was kind of a, something that I initially um, felt myself. And, you know, I thought it was great that you um, said, don't see um, Kim Uriop's life as kind of this split and moving away from the feminist issue. Because I, I myself did that. Um, originally, and then on reflection from seeing what you wrote, um, changed my attitude. So, am I right in saying that you think that those criticisms um, that she was turning away from feminism when she became a nun are actually reproducing the criticisms of her her life at the time? What, what do you mean by that? Well, so because there were the um, the scandals surrounding uh-huh. um, the misogynistic scandal surrounding mm-hmm. her. Uh, love life and and because of that and then people when she became a nun were kind of saying well she's clearly failed in in her life and is kind of Mm -hmm. retreating Mm -hmm. away to becoming a nun but actually so then if we're if we're now saying that oh that's what she was doing we're actually reproducing the kind of patriarchal criticisms that were being levied against her in Korea at the time right that's a very good point actually the the thing that the uh, first, one of the another reason why Kimirab's Buddhism has not been studied was because Kimirab was a new woman. Mm. When when I um, got this translation of Kimirab's first book, Korean Buddhist community says that why should we translate a kind of this uh, uh, sexual liberalist uh, book, right? So Kimirab's uh, position as a Buddhist nun has been much first of all because she was a nun not a monk woman and then also because she was a new woman and the kind of reputation of a new woman as you just said has had been very bad until 1990s that was a time when korean scholars began to get into the research about new women seriously so give me up 1920 give me up was a new woman uh, asking for demanding for sexual liberation right and then from there until 1990, for all this more than half a century, these new women were criticized as a bad girl, bad women. And so that is why that the people could not put together this bad woman, women, and Buddhism, which is perhaps sacred. But that's one of the, one of the reasons that I uh, used the format of a biography in this book, because if you really look at an individual's life step by step, you begin to understand why certain staging happens in that way, right? And you begin to understand it before you make a judgment about whether that step was right or wrong. And the people who criticize new women or Kimiya as a bad girl, they just take out one moment of her life and then evaluated based on patriarchal patriarchal kind of standard. So the women in 1920s, Korean women who challenged social norms and demanding gender equality, they were bad women, obviously. From our perspective, no, women are doing what they need to do. But then they were wrong for a long, long time in Korean history, almost so throughout the 20th century. And then 1990s, uh, the women scholars uh, in Korea, they began to do a serious research on uh, new women. So in the books on new women in Korea, Kim Il-up was mentioned this way and that way. 
But then there, Gimbi of the Buddhism could not be connected because in order to connect it, you need to uh, study Buddhism. And that's uh, two different genres, right? And new women, the feminist uh, scholar and Buddhist scholar. So a lot of things are kind of uh, combined in the evaluation of Gimiryap. And I don't think this is uh, the only the case with Gimiryap, but many women thinkers, women writers, activists, their lives have been uh, evaluated based on the patriarchal system and then have been forgotten for a long time. Mm. Okay, so we can shift our lens a bit more towards Buddhism itself and how it treats women in our discussion also. So you discussed this in a reference a little bit, and I thought this was very interesting, the kind of things that you were saying. So in the Mahayana Sutras, uh, there is the Vimalakirti Sutra and the Lotus Sutra, which have been the focus to um, a significant extent on the position of women, specifically uh, whether women as women can achieve enlightenment in Buddhism. And so there's kind of, I'm sure you can explain it about the story, about what happens in these sutras. Um, and from what I understand, you thought that the debates uh, between these academics about, you know, what does this say about women actually ignores some of the more crucial issues. Am I, am I right in, in how I'm summarizing what you think? Right, yeah. So uh, as you know that uh, Mahayana Buddhism, especially Buddhism in general, the claim is that nothing in the world has a permanent uh, independent essence. Everything occurs uh, through causes and conditions. So it's a non-substantialist uh, uh, worldview. Now then you apply this idea to gender, then the clear thing is that uh, gender is uh, a kind of phenomenal situation, but gender itself cannot have an essence, right? Then that kind of, uh, uh, by doing, by claiming that, you lose the, the justification for gender discrimination. Now, in this interesting uh, group of literature in Mayana Buddhism, there is a story of uh, body transformation. For example, one of the things that uh, Buddhist tradition said is that women cannot uh, be a Buddha. So women can do a lot of work this life and the next life you should be born as a male and, and obtain enlightenment. Now, obviously, at a certain point, uh, Mahayana Buddhism uh, found it problematic, right? Because uh, nothing has permanent essence. So why should gender be a certain kind of permanent obstacle for, uh, for the being to attain enlightenment? So in a Lotus Sutra, you see that there is an eight-year-old dragon girl claim to obtain enlightenment, which means that she is in a worse kind of situation. She's a dragon, which is non-human, right? And she's eight year old, she's young, and she's a woman. So she has all this obstacle to obtain enlightenment. So it's impossible for her to obtain enli enlightenment, but she claims it. And uh, Shariputra says, that, no, you cannot. Buddhism says that the women cannot obtain enlightenment. And then this, uh, Dragon girl, she changes herself into a male body to prove that she obtained enlightenment. Now, uh, this is an interesting case. Does this mean that women can obtain enlightenment? She needs to change her body into a man, right? And in the Bhimalakiri Sutra, you have an even more interesting story, the same situation. God is claimed to obtain enlightenment, and Saripitra says that no, you cannot. And this time, the goddess changed her body into a male, 
and changes our butterized body into female, right? So now the in recent to kind of scholarship by uh, women scholars especially is to claim that this story means that the women's position in Buddhism was high. Well, that's an interesting claim. So there are uh, different ways of approaching this issue. First of all, Vimalakiti Sutra and the Lotus Sutra were, uh, they emerged around first century. Obviously there are debates about when exactly these uh, materials appeared, but obviously it's about 2000 years ago. 2000 years ago, Buddhism had this much concern about gender issue. Well, I'm not sure, but if they did, these strides didn't have any impact on women's position in Buddhism for the next 2000 years. So for example, when the kind of Buddhist scholars like the Litung Shan, very well-known Hawaiian scholar, talk about the, this uh, uh, Dragon Gold story, he doesn't mention about gender issue. He mentioned about the relationship between those who enlightened and unenlightened and so on and so forth. Right? So I think that it's a little bit off the point if we say use this as a kind of claim that women's position in Buddhism was much better than other kind of patriarchal systems, traditions. However, I believe that this does not mean that we cannot use this material for feminist agenda in Buddhism. In other words, uh, whoever the authors of these uh, sutras and then whatever they were thinking when they created this story, the theory stands. In other words, within Buddhism, nothing has a permanent essence, independent essence. Then gender cannot be a cause of discrimination. And this story shows that. So in other words, we can use this now to promote women's issue within Buddhism and even use it against the Buddhist tradition, right? Buddhist kind of a tradition of gender discrimination for 2000 years. And we can say that, well, tradition itself was not faithful enough to its own teaching. But by using this story, we can demonstrate that well, fundamental Buddhist teachings does not allow gender discrimination. So as Rita Gross says, revalorization of the tradition. We say that Buddhist teaching tells us you cannot discriminate somebody based on whatever essence because we do not have an essence. And this story, even though it didn't have much impact on women's position in Buddhism for past 2000 years, now we can use this as a kind of explain, as explaining why that is the case. So it's both. I think that if you use this, this literature as an evidence that the Buddhism was aware of gender issue 2000 years ago, I would say, uh, not really, but we can use this material to demonstrate why in Buddhism gender discrimination is not supported. And if you kind of claim gender discrimination, that is not faithful to fundamental Buddhist teaching. Mm. Yeah, oh, that, that's really interesting. So you mentioned also in the book um, that uh, Japanese and Korean philosophers um, for the past, let's say, 150 or so years have um, struggled with the question of um, whether Buddhism is a religion or a philosophy. So, so why do you think um, Japanese and Korean philosophers have been so concerned with this discussion? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... Uh... This is really one very historical and clear example uh, that shows us uh, the West dominance in our philosophy and philosophizing. 
as you know that the division between philosophy and religion is Western division. In traditional Asia, East Asia, there was no such a division. And then uh, even the expression philosophy and religion, that did not exist until mid 19th century when Japanese thinker Nishiyamane translated Western uh, the expression philosophy and religion into a East Asian philosophy, uh, Joshua Tetsugaku or Chorak and the religion uh, Shukyo or Zhongjiao or Chongkyo, right? So in other words, the division itself is was introduced to East Asia from the West along with modernization. And I think this context is very important. In other words, for a long time, modernization in East Asia was almost equal to Westernization. So that does not mean that the uh, modernity and modernization in East Asian format did not exist. But whatever that was from for the, the 19th century and the 20th century in this kind of a time of imperialism and colonialism, the modernity meant Western, Western modernity and philosophy and religion came to Asia in that context. What it means is that those who have power has a kind of a way to define it what it should be. So when Western philosophy and religion came to Asia, the Western format of philosophy becomes a default form of philosophy and Western form of religion becomes a default form of religion. Now, East Asian tradition like Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, they have both aspects. But then because this new discipline called philosophy and religion came from the West, East Asian thinkers had to define that where they should categorize their traditional thought. And obviously that's not easy and that's not possible because these traditions have both aspects. Now, we can see it from two different perspectives. Buddhism has both philosophy and religion. That could be understood as a very uh, the positive way because it make it richer. But then you can also take it as a kind of evidence of its inferiority, right? And that is one of the reasons why Western philosophy refused to take non-Western non-Western thought tradition as a philosophy because it has other components. And there comes all this kind of purely complex, right? So philosophy should be in this format. And if you have something else, that cannot be counted as philosophy. And East Asian philosophers and thinkers, they had to categorize this Buddhist tradition, either philosophy or religion. And because that is a modern thing to do, that is a thing to uh, for the civilized society societies do. And this kind of pressure make them struggle. So if you see like uh, Inoue Enyo Japan and Baek Sung-wook in Korea, and, and they all kind of struggled. But I think for this first generation East Asian thinkers, they came up with a, a rather positive uh, evaluation. Baek Sung-wook says that the Korean thinker uh, who had a great influence on Kim Il-up and who was also Kim Il-up's lover, uh, he said that Buddhism is a philosophy which has a religious component, but Buddhism is a philosophy which is superior to Western philosophy because it has a practice component. Now, this practice component is usually what it counts as religion. So in other words, the, this also brings us the interesting question about do you practice the philosophy? We say we practice religion, but do you practice philosophy? 
I always think that we practice philosophy, right? But in, in the Western kind of expression, English expression, the philosophy is something you, I don't know, think about. So it's a theory. And then there, after that, we have a section called applied philosophy. And ethics is applied aspects of philosophical ideas. And I don't think that's how it works. And how do you, how can you just think without actually doing it in life, right? So in a way, this kind of a compartmental way of looking at human life is really a kind of problematic from my perspective. And I think that is a one way that the Asian thinkers struggled when this Western division of philosophy religion came to East Asia and they wanted to, they tried to follow it, but then they realized that well, East Asian tradition, like Buddhism, it has both the philosophy and religion. Mm. So if someone comes to you and says, Buddhism really, is it, is it a philosophy or is it a religion? Is that kind of, is that, is that an injustice? It's certainly in a leading question, but. It mm. has both. It's a Western tradition which compartmentalizes philosophy and religion. But then uh, Buddhism has an aspect which in the West counts as religion. And Buddhism has an aspect which in the Western tradition counts as philosophy, right? So in other words, you, you, once again, you can have an interesting kind of conversation with the students here in the United States. Uh, when I teach Buddhism in a philosophy course, students say, well, isn't it religion? Especially Confucianism. When I teach it in philosophy course, they say, isn't it the philosophy? And then when I teach it, that in religion course, they say it's a philosophy. In other words, their idea of philosophy and religion is so fixed with the Western counterpart, they cannot really see these traditions as either of philosophy or religion, and they put it the other way. And students usually say that Buddhism is a way of life. And I say, what is it, a way of life? How is philosophy different from that? Right? And then, interestingly, um, the French scholar Pierre Hadot, he has a whole book about the philosophy as a way of life. So in other words, uh, people con constantly make a distinction between philosophy, a way of life, and then, and then religion and things like that. But I think we need a little bit more holistic or uh, comprehensive way of understanding our discipline. Pierre Hadot is a scholar of Greek philosophy. Ah, okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, do you have any projects that, you know, you can tell me about that you have um, coming up at the moment? All right, so um, I'm uh, working on my book on related to Derrida and Buddhism. This is uh, the issue that uh, I've been interested in since my uh, graduate school days. So it, uh, for a long time, I've been working, thinking about this, uh, the, the, but then I didn't write a book on this, uh, but then uh, now I am actually writing the book. And because I'm writing it now in this kind of moment of pandemic and all the kind of uh, racial issue going on, it, it is heavily, uh, it's been influenced by the situation in a way that it's a philosophy in a time of pandemic. And pandemic in, the, in this case is not just a COVID-19 virus, but racism is a pandemic in our human history. Discrim gender discrimination is a pandemic in our history. And the whole question is, uh, is there the, what can philosophy do in this situation, right? So I think that's important really 
philosophy actually get engaged with reality and what is happening in our life and in some way give uh, people and, and ourselves uh, a, a tool to uh, interpret the situation, tool to challenge the situation, and a tool to uh, ameliorate the situation. And that's what I'm doing with this book on the Derrida and Buddhism and uh, global ethics or human decency. Uh, exact title is not set yet, but here I outlined the Derrida's philosophy and the Buddhist philosophy, showing the similarities and differences. And then from there, I moved to a really social issues and political issues, the force, the, the police brutality and the discrimination. And I think the final chapter will be on the kind of ethics, what kind of ethics that we can draw uh, from Derrida and Buddhism. So uh, that is really the, the book I'm, I'm writing right now. And then I'm also, uh, I've been thinking uh, about this book on modern Korean Buddhism for a long time. Really, uh, what are the distinctive features of modern Korean thinkers, which in a way also include modern East Asian thinkers. We briefly discussed about this, uh, the philosophy and religion it was a genre that came to East Asia along with modernization but how this East Asian thinkers actually dealt with this and what we learned from them and especially about the logic and then uh, it's a political implication and how this, and this is also related to the current situation in, in the United States with the, uh, the racism and the police brutality and things like that. So how the, the way we think actually shows in our actions, right? So this kind of uh, the formal logic really in a way separating uh, individuals and, and that really appears in our failure to feel the suffering of other human beings. So I'm, I'm thinking how, we, how I kind of concluded this idea of the compassion of Buddhism and that the human decency in a way tying these ideas with the uh, Asian forms of logic and its political implication, which move to ethical dimensions. Wow, well, they, they both sound like very relevant and worthwhile projects. So I'll definitely be reading them. So Jin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, it's, it's been great to talk to you and I'm really grateful that you, that you have come on. Are there any things that you'd like to add that maybe I kind of <laughs> didn't allow you to talk about earlier or anything? No, thank you very much for having me. And I, I'm really excited that you have this kind of project about uh, the Buddhist philosophy. And I think, I hope that uh, this uh, podcast really uh, reaches more people, right? It, it uh, can uh, make an appeal to more people and give people opportunity to think about different forms of doing philosophy. And then, uh, right, and then think differently so they, in a way, also think about the, uh, the philosophy's involvement, engagement with the reality. I think that's exactly what we need. One of the things that we need at this time in, in our history.